Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. How much evidence is enough when it's all circumstantial? All signs in a gruesome murder in Chattanooga, Tennessee point to one man, but he was either a friendly acquaintance in the wrong place at the wrong time or executed a near-masterful cover-up until he lost track of his own lies. This time, on Invisible Choir. You may remember the 48-year-old woman had gone missing back in early to mid-November, and at the end of the month, the passerby found her body badly mutilated. Well, probably face down. I mean, you could place somebody on a table and saw from the bottom up, but it came from the back. He's made the last phone calls to a phone. And I think he probably tricked her or some kind of way got her to come out because she trusted him. I've endured sleepless nights, sick, physically ill with the mental images of Tony Biggums leaning over my tiny sister, probably sweating while sawing off her head. person's case is a bit unusual. Family members tell us 48-year-old Dana Wilkes has a heart condition and diabetes. However, they believe she left her home suddenly without any medication. And that's not all. She did not show up for work. And her car was found in what some consider to be a rough part of town. She would not miss work. That's the one thing. If she went a few days without talking to us, I could understand that, but she would not miss work. But that's what happened Saturday morning. She missed her shift here at this dialysis clinic off 3rd Street. Yates tells us that hasn't happened ever in her 14-year career. The Chattanooga woman goes missing on November 10, 2012. The police quickly discover her green Jeep Cherokee abandoned on the side of the road near a busy tunnel. Her purse and car keys are nowhere to be found, and neither is she. The family of 48-year-old Dana Wilkes grows increasingly concerned as the pieces begin falling into place day by day, that their beloved sister and mother has likely met with foul play. She was last seen the evening before on Friday, November 9th by an acquaintance, and then, for all intents and purposes, it appears she simply vanished sometime between 10.30 and 11 o'clock that evening, and worse off, the chronic diabetic didn't take her life-saving insulin with her. The clock was officially ticking as her family, a community, and local police began their search. Wherever she is, we know that she can't survive without her insulin. So, so wherever she is, if she's, in, if she's alive or she's not, we know that she can't be without her insulin this long. 
Wilkes last spoke to her mother on the phone at around 10 o'clock the evening before, indicating that she was preparing to go to bed. But her neighbors reported that they heard her leaving her apartment in her Jeep sometime around 10.30. Relayed to my mother that she was about to go to bed. She had to be at work at 5.30 on Saturday morning. I don't know if she opened the door to someone and someone forced her to go somewhere, um, but she would give someone a ride. Family described Dana Wilkes early on as a caring, energetic spitfire. An unusually petite woman, she stood just 4 feet 11 inches tall and barely weighed over 100 pounds. She was also married, but suspicions early on that her husband Tom may have had something to do with her disappearance were quickly abandoned after it was revealed that he was incarcerated for traffic-related probation violations at the time she went missing. But by Saturday afternoon, there was already a major break in the case. Police found her Jeep Saturday night on Wilcox Boulevard, just two miles from her home. No keys and no Wilkes in sight. Dana Wilkes was a patient care technician at a local dialysis clinic incorporated in Chattanooga, Tennessee. She was scheduled to work the morning of Saturday, November 10th at 5.30. It was a shift she routinely picked up in her nearly 14 years of employment at the clinic. So when her supervisor, Leslie Brown, noticed her absence on Saturday morning, something seemed off. It was completely out of Dana's character to miss work, especially without calling in or communicating in some way with her colleagues. As 5.30 turned into 5.45 and eventually 6 a.m., Leslie Brown called Wilkes' cell phone repeatedly to see if maybe she had just overslept or run into car trouble on the way into work. But she didn't receive an answer to any of the calls. So later on Saturday morning, when there was a break in activity, Supervisor Leslie Brown and another Dialysis Clinic Inc. employee drove to Dana's home to check on her. As they pulled up to her apartment, they immediately noticed that her green Jeep Cherokee wasn't parked outside where it normally sat. So, figuring she wasn't home, they left, without ever going to knock at her front door. As word of Dana's uncharacteristic absence slowly began to spread around her place of employment, confusion quickly turned to grave concern when Dana's mother, Carol, phoned in asking to speak with Dana's supervisor. Carol Sims told Leslie Brown that she had been trying to get in touch with her daughter since earlier in the morning, as was their regular routine but that Dana hadn't answered any of her calls, and she was finally checking in to see if her daughter had reported to work. After hearing that her mother had phoned in to check on her, Dana's co-workers began asking around if anyone had seen or heard from the 48-year-old. Not realizing there was a problem, one of Dana's colleagues casually mentioned that she had actually seen Wilkes's Jeep parked on the side of the road near the Wilcox Boulevard Tunnel at around 11 a.m. that morning while she was on her way into work. But she didn't think to share it sooner, because she didn't know Dana Wilkes had gone missing. Carol Sims had also called her grandson Robert, Dana's son, around the same time to ask if he had seen or heard from his mother. He hadn't, so like everyone else, he tried calling Dana repeatedly to no avail. He also drove over to his mother's apartment to check on her, noting the absence of her Jeep as he approached her front door. As he prepared to knock, Robert noticed that the front door was unlocked, so he went inside. There were no immediate signs of struggle or foul play, but Robert didn't see his mother's purse or keys anywhere in the apartment. But when he checked the refrigerator and saw her life-saving insulin still inside, he grew alarmed and called police to report her missing.
Officer Charles Decker of the Chattanooga Police responded to Dana Wilkes' apartment to meet with Robert at 4 p.m. to file her missing persons report. Officer Decker confirmed with Robert that Dana's mother, Carol, was the last person to speak with her just the evening before via telephone at around 10 o'clock. He also noted that this was the first time Dana had missed work in her nearly 14 years of employment at the dialysis clinic. After having a look around and gathering all of the necessary details, Officer Decker left the scene and Robert returned home, where he sat worried about his mother until he received a call at around 7 o'clock Saturday night from one of Dana's co-workers. They shared with him that someone had seen Dana's green Jeep Cherokee parked off the side of the road near the Wilcox Tunnel earlier in the day. Without hesitation, Robert and his roommate headed straight for the tunnel to see if her Jeep was still there. When they arrived, they saw that it was, and upon closer inspection, it sat empty, all of the doors unlocked. Robert entered the Jeep and noticed the driver's seat was pulled all the way forward, just the way his 4-foot 11-inch mother set it to be able to drive. He also observed that the pillow his mother routinely used for an additional boost was still sitting there in her driver's seat. Robert looked through the vehicle and again didn't see his mother's purse or keys and after noticing what appeared to be dried blood on the passenger glove compartment, he phoned police again to report the first major break in her disappearance. So I just shined my phone on it and I looked over in the passenger side and there was on the glove box the compartment thing on the dash, uh, not the dash, but the glove box. On that, I saw the dried um, blood that was, it was like it had been dripping and it just dried. Police found her Jeep Saturday night on Wilcox Boulevard, just two miles from her home. No keys and no Wilkes in sight. Standing solemnly in the rain distributing flyers on Monday, November 12th, with still no word on Dana's whereabouts, her sister Amy Yates pleads with the public for help because the family fears Dana Wilkes has likely been the victim of a horrendous crime. And even though they know about the blood found in Dana's Jeep, the police have advised them not to release that critical bit of information as they move forward in the early stages of their investigation into her disappearance. Wherever she is, we know that she can't survive without her insulin. So, so wherever she is, if she's, in, if she's alive or she's not, we know that she can't be without her insulin this long. If she's alive, I feel like she's either in the woods somewhere, we don't want to think that, or she's being held against her will somewhere. Police found Wilkes' insulin at her home in her usual bag. And Yates says if that wasn't strange enough, her apartment door was left unlocked and her once active cell phone now says this subscriber does not have a voicemail box set up. Imagine printing those flyers with your sister's bright, smiling face, knowing that her son had already discovered what appeared to be blood inside of her abandoned Jeep in a sketchy, crime-ridden part of town. Now imagine if her son may have already inadvertently had contact with the man most would eventually presume killed Dana Wilkes. That was exactly what happened. But we have to go back to Saturday, the very day he discovered his mother's Jeep. After Robert's call came in Saturday from the Wilcox Tunnel, CPD Detective Reginald Parks came to examine Dana's Jeep, along with Officer Decker who took her initial missing persons report earlier in the day. Before they reopened the vehicle, Detective Parks didn't note any obvious signs of blood on the outside, but he did observe what appeared to be dried blood spatter on the front passenger side dash and glove compartment. Once inside, he carefully noted blood smears on the passenger side doors, 
as well as on the back seat. He also documented a, quote, noticeable amount of blood on the front passenger seat, an area that was quite possibly the scene of some type of violent attack. Officer Decker then accompanied Dana's son, Robert, back to her apartment while the Jeep was being impounded by police. When they arrived, one of Dana's neighbors came outside and approached the two men, indicating that a man named Tony Biggums, a family friend of Dana's incarcerated husband, Tom, was on the phone and that they should talk to him because he not only spoke with Dana on Friday night, he was also likely the last person to have seen her alive before she mysteriously vanished. Bickham's revealed to Robert that he had gone to Walmart just the evening before with Dana to, quote, get some parts for a broken toilet. According to Tony Biggums, he was simply lending Dana a helping hand, as he had done on prior occasions any time her husband was incarcerated. After helping her out, Tony claims the two then amicably parted ways, and that he hadn't seen or heard from her anymore on Friday evening. Though his claims were vague, Biggums' story gave police somewhere to begin looking for clues and possibly answers. Before the call ended, Robert politely asked Tony to call him personally, in addition to law enforcement, if he remembered anything else or heard anything about his mother's whereabouts. At noon the very next day, Tony Biggums called Robert again, only this time it was clear that he was more interested in hearing what police had to say regarding Dana Wilkes' disappearance than offering up any helpful information to her son. Tony Biggums called Robert and asked him if he had heard from his mother, but he was mostly interested in hearing what the police had to say early on about their investigation. Did they reveal if they had any leads, or had they yet identified a prime suspect? Around this same time, Dana's co-workers had also been comparing notes on who had last seen her. It was then that multiple people realized they had all seen her the day she disappeared with someone she had previously introduced as her husband Tom's cousin though they couldn't recall the man's actual name. So on Sunday, Detective Parks went to the Hamilton County Jail to speak directly with Dana's husband. Though he was never considered a suspect himself, they wanted to know who this alleged cousin was that his wife had been spotted with the afternoon of her disappearance. Tom Wilkes immediately identified his longtime friend, Tony Biggums, as the person in question. And from day one, Tom Wilkes believed Tony was the man responsible for his wife's mysterious disappearance. Detective Parks, now having enough information to identify Tony Biggums as a potential suspect, went and spoke with him that same day on Sunday, March 11th. Biggums calmly answered all of his questions and gave him a vague timeline of the events from Friday evening. Biggums admitted that he knew who Dana Wilkes was and that he had, quote, run into her Friday evening at Walmart. He also claimed that he, quote, may have gotten a ride home from her that night, but the details were foggy. Biggums alleged that Dana said something about, quote, going to sell some pills or something, and that she routinely drove her husband around town while he sold his prescription drugs illegally. Biggums was unable to provide any additional information on the apparent drug deal, but he did ask Detective Parks if they had any leads. Parks revealed that they did find her Jeep on Saturday evening, but didn't yet share any information about the blood they had discovered inside. Without any further questions, Detective Parks left noting that he didn't observe any obvious injuries on the man who was quickly shaping up to be their prime suspect. Less than 24 hours later on Monday, March 12th, police brought Tony Biggums in for formal questioning after his name repeatedly came up from one of Dana's close friends, someone who claimed that Dana had confided in her previously that she feared Tony Biggums and that he had previously made unwanted sexual advances toward her while her husband was in jail. 
Biggums agreed to the interview and calmly answered their questions once more, but his story was already beginning to change. Where he had previously claimed to Dana's son that he had gone to Walmart to get parts for a toilet, he now told police that Dana Wilkes actually called him on Friday, shortly after speaking to her incarcerated husband Tom on the phone. She allegedly needed his help fixing her broken sink, so Biggums agreed to assist, meeting her at a local family dollar parking lot at around 6 p.m. before the two hopped in her Jeep and went to Walmart to look for parts that he would need to fix her sink. Biggums then claimed that they had gotten separated in Walmart and that he then called her on her cell so they could reconnect. After checking out, Biggums claimed the pair then headed to a nearby Murphy gas station in Dana's Jeep. He then explained that Dana dropped him off at his girlfriend's apartment in town, though that detail would eventually change by the end of his interview where he ultimately insisted she actually dropped him back off at the Family Dollar parking lot. But strangely, according to his account, he never went to Dana's apartment to help her fix the broken sink and assumed that she had taken the parts back to her apartment herself because he, quote, heard they didn't find those items in her Jeep. Biggums also claimed to police that Dana had mentioned going to sell some of her husband's pills to two of his regular clients, but that one never called her back and the other backed out of the sale at the last minute. He noted that Dana also had her husband's cell phone and was likely negotiating the supposed drug deal from his line. During the interview, Biggums also confessed to having been inside of Dana and Tom's apartment two or three times since Tom had last been incarcerated the week before, but vehemently denied engaging in any sort of romantic relationship with Dana and that he had simply been lending her a helping hand. Near the end of his interview, Tony Biggums revealed that when he heard police found, quote, a little bit of blood in the passenger side of the Jeep, a detail, by the way, that was never publicly released, he claims he didn't know how it would have gotten there while the two were together because she wasn't bleeding as far as he could tell. Police then asked where Tony had been staying since Dana's disappearance, and Tony explained that he'd been living in his girlfriend's house in addition to, quote, helping manage his aunt's house while she was hospitalized. His aunt, who just so happened to live right up the road from the Wilcox Tunnel, the very spot where Dana's Jeep had been discovered Saturday night. Police searched Dana's home the very next day and found the very plumbing supplies that Tony had described she likely took home after their trip to Walmart. While inside, police noted her toilet was running and appeared to be broken, an odd detail that strangely corroborated Tony's original statement to Dana's son, Robert. They also found several empty prescription pill bottles belonging to both Tom and Dana. It seemed that parts of Tony's story were lining up, but why was he changing the small details, like where they met, where she dropped him off, and why he was, quote, helping her out in the first place. Tony Biggums was hiding something, something he hoped police would never find. The truth. As the days continued to pass, one by one with no additional breaks in the case, Dana's family wondered, what the hell happened to the bubbly, contagiously happy 48-year-old? And why hadn't the police figured anything out yet? And then... Just four days after initially questioning Tony Biggums, police showed up at his girlfriend's apartment on Friday, March 16th, with a search warrant. Inside, they found a very clean apartment, but seized a pair of shoes belonging to Biggums that smelled heavily of bleach and were missing the laces and inner soles. They also collected a blue bucket from the laundry room. According to Tony's girlfriend, he had soaked the tennis shoes in the bucket after filling it with bleach the previous Saturday morning, claiming that he had gotten grease on them after helping family friend Dana Wilkes fix her car the evening before on Friday. She alerted officers that Tony even called her that Friday night, supposedly claiming that he was with Dana and her mother at Walmart 
picking up parts to fix her car. She didn't recognize the bleach, however, because they never kept any in the apartment, so she had assumed that Tony must have gotten it from his aunt's house near the Wilcox Tunnel. When police asked if she remembered what time Tony left and returned Friday evening, she was unable to piece together a timeline because she heavily relied on strong sleeping pills and a CPAP breathing machine to help her sleep at night. Though she did reveal that it was a regular occurrence for Tony to sneak out in the middle of the night and to take her car cruising around town. The alarming discovery of the bleach-soaked shoes, along with officers noting what appeared to be small cuts and abrasions on the back of Tony Biggums' hands, led them to bring him in again for questioning on Friday, exactly one week since Dana Wilkes had gone missing. No surprise, Tony changed his story yet again. This time, he claims the two were together earlier in the afternoon and that Dana had dropped him off at the family dollar sometime between 6.30 and 7 o'clock Friday evening. He then claims to have driven his own car over to his aunt's house, where he hung out for about three hours and then went back to his girlfriend's apartment between 10.30 and 11. He then claimed that during the drive back home that he, quote, might have tried to call Dana while on the road, but that she didn't answer. He then claimed that he got home, took a shower, and went to bed, sleeping all the way through the night until Saturday morning. Tony then claimed that he went to pick up his cousin, and the two spent all day Saturday drinking and watching college football, but that at some point during the day, he began receiving calls about Dana's disappearance. One from one of her co-workers' boyfriends, who claimed that police found Dana's body, and that she still had a, quote, slight heartbeat, and another from one of Dana's friends, who later told police that she was concerned at the nature of the call because Tony revealed to her the very day that Dana's Jeep was discovered that he knew it had been found with blood inside and that the keys were also missing, details neither of which were yet publicly known. That friend, who will simply call SC, also alerted police that Tony told her that he was actually with Dana much later into the evening until at least 10 o'clock on Friday night and that, quote, blood was on somebody's hands. As Tony Biggums continued concocting story after story, attempting to create an endless series of empty rabbit holes for police to chase down, they confronted him with some new evidence, evidence that proved he was a liar. Police told Biggums that they had surveillance footage from the Murphy gas station that showed the two of them together fueling up and buying supplies inside at just after 9 p.m. Friday, and that there was no way she dropped him off at the family dollar, as he had claimed, before 7 o'clock. They also confronted him on his lie that he last called Dana between 10.30 and 11 o'clock Friday before going to bed, because in the time since they last questioned him, police had subpoenaed both of their phone records, records that clearly showed Tony Biggums last called Dana Wilkes's phone just after 2.30 in the morning on Saturday, and that it had connected not to a tower near his apartment where he was allegedly fast asleep, but near his aunt's house and the Wilcox Tunnel where Dana's Jeep was eventually discovered. Tony, whose story had by now evolved at least three different times, changed course yet again, admitting that he, quote, must have snuck out to get me a skis or something, claiming that he took his girlfriend's car out early in the morning to the east side of town to look for a prostitute, but that he must have called Dana Wilkes's phone by accident. Police then confronted Biggums with the information that one of Dana's friends provided them early on, that Dana feared Tony because he had once aggressively propositioned her for oral sex, but Tony immediately dismissed the incident as having occurred some six or seven months before when he was drunk, and that Dana's husband Tom confronted him about the incident and that it had since been resolved. Police also confronted Tony with the cell phone tower records, which showed that both his and Dana's phones were together in the same region 
at 2.30 Saturday morning when he last called, which might help explain that somebody, namely Tony Biggums, had likely cleared Dana's voicemail and attempted calling her phone one last time to ensure that his efforts were successful. But Tony vehemently denied having anything to do with Dana's disappearance. He had a convenient explanation for every question police threw his way. The shoes? Simple. He had gotten grease on them from a project in his garage, and he was just cleaning them. What about the 2.30 a.m. phone call? Easy. It was just an accidental butt dial. And what about the cuts on Tony's hands? Well, according to Tony himself, they were likely from a project he was working on at a local community college where he was studying horticulture. Tony Biggums denied having anything at all to do with Dana Wilkes' disappearance, and he assured police that if they ever did find her body, there would be absolutely no evidence on it at all tying her death back to him. A bizarre assurance from someone who claimed to have nothing to do with Dana's disappearance, especially since police didn't know either way whether Dana was dead or alive. Not until a group of duck hunters made a grisly discovery nine days later on the morning of November 25th. We need to caution people up front that some of this information is graphic. Now, this is the complete autopsy of Dana Wilkes, and it confirms some things we already knew. It also reveals some things about this brutal death. Now, Dana Wilkes was decapitated, and we have now confirmed both of her hands were missing. Both had been severed at the lower forearms. Now, back on November 25th, a passerby found her body in this condition on the bank of South Chickamauga Creek near Youngstown Road. Now, she had been missing at that point for about two weeks, and the autopsy, released just about an hour ago, indicates the dismemberment was post-mortem and the cause of death remains unknown. Three friends were out duck hunting on the South Chickamauga Creek in the early morning hours of November 25th, 2012 when one of the men saw something on the bank that resembled leftover Halloween decorations. They pulled their boat ashore to investigate the scene further and quickly discovered that what lay in front of them there on the shore were no Halloween decorations at all, but a human body laying face up on its back with no head or hands. The body was clearly female and had only shoes and jeans on. There was no shirt or bra on the now significantly decomposing body. After police were called to the scene, they quickly discovered a bra located just up the steep embankment near the guardrail on Youngstown Road. There was also an obvious path from the road all the way down to the water, as if someone dragged the body all the way down, flattening the thick, prickly underbrush all along the way. Police also discovered a white t-shirt and a yellow Jeep key fob in the brush next to the body. The shirt was turned inside out and covered in dirt. A cigarette lighter and single methadone pill were in the pockets of the jeans. Though police and the medical examiner's office weren't publicly confirming that this was, in fact, Dana Wilkes's body, the clothing matched what she was wearing on the surveillance video from the Murphy gas station two weeks before. And soon, Dana's husband, Tom, who was still incarcerated at the Hamilton County Jail, would confirm to local media sources what the family already suspected, that the body they had just discovered on the banks of the South Chickamauga Creek was that of his beloved wife, Dana Wilkes. Tom Wilkes was in jail when his wife turned up missing and when her body, or this body rather, was discovered. Dana Wilkes worked at a dialysis clinic and Tom met her as a patient and in his words, romanced her. But tonight, he knows she suffered a quote, horrible death. And she came to visit me. The last time I seen my baby. 
Tom Wilkes saw his wife Dana Wilkes the day before she disappeared. She would come to see him twice a week as he served his probation violation time. He talked with her by phone the same day she went missing, November 9th. On November 25th, a passerby found a woman's body at Youngstown Road near the South Chickamauga Creek. Police and the medical examiner have yet to publicly identify the body as Wilkes, but her family believes it is. And Tom has no doubt. I told him, I said, you gave me hands and you took her away. The Friday before last, police asked Tom to look at pictures they had taken. They showed a Mickey Mouse and butterfly tattoo on Dana's legs. When I seen the tattoos, I know they were hers. A horrible death, she died. The discovery of Dana's body led police to execute additional search warrants at Tony Biggums' aunt's house in addition to a third mystery property that police had discovered Tony visited numerous times during the late evening hours following Dana's disappearance after they placed him under 24-hour police surveillance in hopes that he would lead them to her body. Police also executed a search warrant on Tony's car, but it had recently been thoroughly cleaned and detailed, so police were unable to lift a single fingerprint from the entire vehicle. Shockingly, there wasn't a single piece of concrete physical evidence in any of the three homes or the car that police could use to tie Tony Biggums to the murder of Dana Wilkes. Police also conducted exhaustive searches of the entire wooded hillside along the South Chickamauga Creek where her body was discovered, but they were never able to recover Dana's head or hands. It was as if what Tony Biggums claimed during his second interrogation actually came to fruition, that if police ever did recover her body, that they would never find any evidence on it, tying him to the crime. Sadly, Dana's husband Tom passed away from natural causes less than three months after she went missing and would never live to see the justice that would ultimately be served her killer when he finally faced a jury in 2014. That man ultimately was Tony Biggums, but he wasn't even arrested until months later on January 16, 2013, when the full battery of forensic testing from the crime scenes had been processed and it was discovered that the man who claimed simply to have been in the wrong place at the wrong time actually had made a critical mistake. He left his DNA on Dana Wilkes's bloodied bra at the crime scene, the very place he claimed he had never been. And as far as Dana's earlier concerns regarding Tony's repeated sexual advances, they were well-founded, as he was a known sexual predator. Tony Biggums had already served time for an aggravated sexual battery conviction dating back to 2007. And the year before that, Biggums was acquitted of first-degree murder in the 2002 killing of Dina Burney, a 37-year-old woman who died of strangulation and whose body was dumped in the same region of Chattanooga as that of Dana Wilkes. In that case, forensics experts identified Biggums' DNA inside of Burney's mouth as well as underneath her fingernails. But there was no concrete evidence that he was the killer because Burney was a known sex worker and Biggums claimed he simply paid for sex with the woman. Dana's sister Amy, however, believed Tony forced Dana to perform oral sex on him, and instead of making the same mistake twice, he opted to crudely cut off her head and hands to fully eliminate any chance of accidentally leaving behind DNA on her body. At his eventual trial, the prosecution built their case around the complex web of lies that Tony Biggums told the police, and the fact that his DNA could not have been mixed with Dana's blood unless he were the killer. 
They also highlighted how Tony Biggums had called and spoken with Dana some 23 times between November 1st and November 9th, but then showed how his calls miraculously stopped in the literal minutes surrounding Dana's confirmed time of disappearance, likely because he knew she would never answer the phone again because he had killed her. They painted the picture of a known violent sexual predator who had been desiring of oral sex from Dana Wilkes for months and who ultimately found a way to exploit her kindness, killing the petite 4 foot 11 inch woman while her husband was incarcerated. They wanted the jury to understand that Tony Biggums wasn't the concerned family friend he claimed to be, but that he was a calculated killer who had begun systematically calling witnesses to get updates on the investigation on the very day they reported Dana missing. Then. On April 15, 2014, in a courtroom filled with Dana's friends and family wearing purple ribbons sewn by her grandmother in honor of her favorite color, the jury deliberated on Tony Biggums' fate. They found him guilty of first-degree murder and abuse of a corpse. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after only 30 years. Before they took him away, Dana's sister, Amy, looked the man responsible for her sister's death directly in the eyes and addressed him in front of the court. They don't want to share the air that you breathe because you've taken a precious light from us. Why couldn't you stop at killing her? How could you do such an act? This is what our family has to live with every day. I've endured sleepless nights, sick, physically ill with the mental images of Tony Biggums leaning over my tiny sister probably sweating while sawing off her head. Thanks to Tony Biggums, we have every day to think of that and miss our precious sister, daughter, mother, cousin, aunt, friend, co-worker. You may have taken her life, but you will never extinguish her light. Tony Biggums successfully appealed his original 2014 murder conviction on the grounds of improper jury sequestration improper testimony admissions, and inclusion of inadmissible evidence from a warrantless search of his cell phone. He was granted a new trial in September of 2019. After hearing the facts, the jury deliberated for only two hours and reconvicted Tony Biggums of first-degree murder and abuse of a corpse. He was sentenced to life in prison and will not be eligible for parole for another 56 years. 